In March 1822, an advertisement appeared in the Missouri Republican newspaper. To enterprising young men, the subscriber wishes to engage 100 young men to ascend the Missouri River to its source, there to be employed for one, two, or three years. For particulars, inquire of Major Andrew Henry near the lead mines in the county of Washington, who will ascend with and command the party, or of the subscriber near St. Louis. This is a historic newspaper ad. It was answered by a corps of robust and brave and adventurous and mostly very young men, many of whose names would pass into frontier legend. Among them was a strapping 17-year-old named James Bridger. The era of the mountain men had begun. The era of the mountain men spanned scarcely two decades from about 1820 to about 1840. It was only a brief moment in the saga of the fur trade in North America, which spanned centuries, right from the very beginning of, uh, of European settlement in North America. From the very first European ventures into the continent, men had traded for furs, and especially prime beaver pelts. Then, as now, Beaver fur made the finest felt for hats. Uh, my custom hat maker, Gene Baldwin, can tell you that a 100% beaver felt hat is light and durable and water resistant. It's the class of the field. I'd be wearing mine right now, except that it's hotter than hell's hinges in the Pacific Northwest right now. Anyway, through most of the fur trade, the business relied on native peoples to trap and kill the beaver and trade the pelts for firearms, blankets, kettles, paint and beads, and very ruinously for them, uh, whiskey or rum. In the early 1820s, uh, William Ashley, who was a, a brigadier general in the Missouri militia, and Andrew Henry introduced an innovation. Instead of relying on trade, they decided that they would outfit an expedition of American trappers into the beaver streams to trap the beaver directly. And uh, what would become the Rocky Mountain Fur Company would supply them uh, out of uh, remote trading posts. The men would work on shares, and half their take went to the company and, and half went to them, which was an incentive for them to, uh, rather than working on wages, for them to work hard, trap a lot of beaver, because they kept half of their catch. Joining up with Ashley's 100, as they came to be called, launched Jim Bridger into what would be a four-decade career on the plains in the Rocky Mountains, which he would come to know as well as any man who ever lived. He would become a beaver trapper, a fur brigade leader, a guide for immigrants, and a scout for the U.S. Army. And in his lifetime, the American West would change from a wilderness dominated by powerful native societies to a settled land filled up with miners and settlers and soldiers. Jim Bridger's family moved west from Richmond, Virginia to the Illinois country in 1812, right in the middle of America's second war with Great Britain. At that time, the Illinois country would have been uh, considered the frontier still. He was eight years old, and 
the first years there in, in Illinois uh, went went well, but uh, his life would be marred by tragic losses. In quick succession, he lost his mother, brother, and father to illness, and by the age of 13, he was an orphan responsible for the keep of his surviving sister. As did many boys in his era, Bridger apprenticed himself out to earn his keep and to learn a trade. Historians usually say that Bridger was apprenticed to a blacksmith, which is true enough, but it's kind of like saying that a kid who apprenticed with Michelangelo was working for a painter. The man Bridger apprenticed to was Philip Creamer, perhaps the premier gunsmith in in the United States. Uh, This is a man who made dueling pistols for the likes of Senator John C. Calhoun and eventually for President Andrew Jackson. So he was no mere blacksmith. Uh, His his guns had such a fine reputation that uh, something that was absolutely reliable was said to be as sure as a creamer lock, as in the lock on, on a pistol or a rifle. And working with Creamer actually gave Jim Bridger his first experience in in living amongst Indians. As Bridger's most recent and by far the best biographer, Jerry Ensler, writes, One of Bridger's first tasks under Mr. Creamer was to journey with him to the Illinois Indian Agency in Peoria. After the war, that would be the War of 1812, The Potawatomis were woefully short of working firearms, powder, and ball, and thus were unable to hunt. The United States established an Indian sub-agency in Peoria, and Illinois Indian agent Richard Graham hired Creamer and his apprentice Jim Bridger to take care of the Potawatomis' gunsmithing and blacksmithing needs. So very early on, Bridger had established a relationship with Native peoples that involved trade and peaceful coexistence, which would always be a part of, of his life from then on. But Jim Bridger was not destined to master the craft of building a fine rifle. He was destined to carry one across his saddle, uh, wielding it to bring down buffalo for a feast or to fend off Blackfeet warriors intent on taking his scalp. When he hit the age of 17, he was big and strong for his age, and he was ready to cut loose of settled living and even his honorable trade. So Ashley and Henry's advertisement, which had to be read to him because he never did learn to read, was like the sounding of a a great war horn leading him into the wilderness, and he would never fully return. Ensler writes, Henry and Ashley were revolutionizing the trapping industry, hiring trappers to work on commission and paying them half the value of the skins of the beavers they trapped. Their plan relied on trappers to help transport supplies up the Missouri to the mountains and build and defend a fort in Indian land. The Henry and Ashley Fur Company would provide Bridger with a gun, powder, lead balls, and traps. Anything else he wanted, he would have to buy on credit from the company. Could Bridger become one of those enterprising young men? Would he survive on the frontier? Like most who could not write, Bridger would have put his X next to his name in the ledger. 
His fortunes were now tied to the company, and he could make a dollar or more for every beaver he caught and skinned, more than the daily pay for rivermen or Indian interpreters. He planned to send any money he earned back to the American bottom to support his sister. If he was sharp, he could make his pile. If he wasn't, he could make his grave. So polling and hauling and occasionally sailing a keelboat up the Missouri River was just absolutely brutal work. Uh, fortunately for Bridger, he ended up being detailed out with Andrew Henry uh, and 21 men and 60 horses and, uh, and one keelboat to the mouth of the Yellowstone River where they built a trading post named Fort Henry. Bridger wintered with Henry's men and learned a trap there. He also learned to be very wary of the Blackfeet, who killed several of Henry's trappers shortly after they arrived. We should talk a bit about the Blackfeet. They're not that well remembered in popular history. They're not as famous as the Lakota Sioux who wiped out Custer's command at the Little Bighorn. Um, and that's mainly because by the time the uh, the Wild West period, uh, the post-Civil War Western period uh, was underway, the Blackfeet had been decimated and their military power broken by a terrible outbreak of smallpox, which occurred in 1838. But at the time of our story here, in the era of the, the Rocky Mountain fur trade, they were the most powerful and most feared native people on the northern plains and in the northern Rockies um, as feared and as capable as the Comanche were on the southern plains. They were just the ultimate badass warriors. They fought just about everybody. Their, uh, their intertribal battles were not just showy, counting coup displays of courage, and they weren't just horse raids. These were imperial people. One battle with the Cree left uh, 200 of their enemies dead, which puts the fight on the same scale as the Battle of the Little Bighorn. The Blackfeet were, were serious. They were a magnificent and deadly specimen of mounted gunmen filibustering an empire, a lot of those around in the 19th century. They roamed and dominated a vast territory encompassing both prairie and mountain terrain in what is now Montana and up into Canada. And they gave the mountain men all kinds of hell. Um, David J. Silverman, in his fantastic book Thundersticks, devotes a chapter to explaining why. And what it boils down to is that Blackfeet dominance of the gun trade um, gave them an edge in armaments over their tribal rivals, mainly the Shoshone and the Crow, and in Canada, the Cree. The Blackfeet wanted to keep their enemies away from sources of arms and the sources of arms away from their enemies. So maintaining their trade in firearms required peltries. That was the currency of exchange for guns, powder, and shot. Uh, the Blackfeet traded extensively with the Hudson's Bay Company in Canada, um, also the Northwest Company, and eventually with the Americans and the American Fur Company out of Fort Benton. Their 
hatred of American trappers was primarily based on their, from their perspective, entirely rational consideration that the mountain men were interlopers and poachers in their territory. The mountain men were looting the Blackfeet's resource wealth, and they weren't having it. Um, inevitably, this conflict, which started right from the, the very first American trappers that, that moved up the Missouri River, even before the Ashley Henry expedition, this conflict created a cycle of violence and became basically a feud, um, which was not much different from the uh, ongoing intertribal battles with other native peoples, except that for the Blackfeet, killing Americans tended to bring in a big haul of furs and firearms. So the Blackfeet were essentially the natural enemy of the American fur trapper all through the period that, that we're discussing. So with a wilderness winter under his belt, Bridger was now the real deal, what mountain men would call a hibernant. He had learned the ropes and, uh, and become a, a full-fledged mountain man. In the summer of 1823, an incident occurred that now has Bridger's name indelibly attached to it, though he may not have actually been involved. And uh, I'm talking about Hugh Glass's legendary mauling at the hands of a grizzly bear. You're probably familiar with the story. Um, it's, a, it's a stock legend of the Mountain Man era. Uh, in 2002, a writer named Michael Punk wrote a novel about it titled The Revenant, which was made into the Oscar-winning film starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, love the film? Really do. It's very heavily mythologized, um, but it's a damn fine Mountain Man film, nevertheless. But the basic story goes like this. Hugh Glass was a hired hunter for Andrew Henry's men, and in August of 1823, he was hunting some distance in front of, of the Henry party, uh, moving in heavy cover along the Grand River in what is now South Dakota. And he hit the nightmare scenario uh, for any hiker, fisherman, or in that, uh, in this case, uh, hunter or mountain man, and surprised a sow grizzly with a pair of cubs. And as any backpacker knows, this is about as dangerous a situation as a person can encounter in the wild. The grizzly charged glass and subjected him to a mauling that his companions, who responded to his screams and burst through the brush and killed the bear, they immediately assessed his, his wounds as fatal. But Glass didn't die right away. So they carried him along on a litter. And th that was, was moving at a very slow pace. And that kind of pace endangered the whole party who were under constant threat from Indian attacks. So as the story goes, two men... John Fitzgerald and a young Jim Bridger agreed to stay put and wait for Glass's demise. And they received an $80 bonus for stepping up. And they waited 
for five days, and Glass didn't die. Fearing that they would be left impossibly far behind their trapping party, Fitzgerald and Bridger gathered up Glass's rifle, knife, and fire-making tools and left him to breathe out his last out on the prairie. But Glass still didn't die. Incredibly, he survived his horrible wounds and roused himself and began to crawl. And he would crawl and stagger more than 200 miles south and east to the trading outpost of Fort Kiowa on the Missouri River, living on insects and somewhat edible plants. Um, a rattlesnake he managed to crush with a rock and uh, the carcasses of buffalo that he found out on the prairie. Glass's survival and, and this incredible crawl to safety was, was motivated by a desire for revenge against the men who had abandoned him. And that's the kind of story basis for the, the film The Revenant. But when he healed up enough to track Bridger down, he felt sorry for the kid, 17, 18, 18 years old, I guess, 19 maybe, um, at this time, who had been influenced by the more experienced and older companion. So he let Bridger off the hook. And he headed downriver looking for Fitzgerald and found him too, but Fitzgerald had enlisted in the army, and Glass couldn't touch him without hanging for it. So he gave up on his revenge. Uh, he did get his rifle back from Fitzgerald, though, and he went uh, um, back to hunting for a living. He went south for a spell and got into a run-in with Shoshone Indians in Colorado and took an arrow in the back. <laughs> he, had, he had bad luck. Um, a fellow trapper sliced the arrowhead out of his back muscles with a straight razor, and, uh, and he went down to Taos, New Mexico, which was also, a uh, as we talked about in the Kit Carson series, a locus of the, the southwestern fur trade, and uh, spent some time there in Taos recuperating from his latest insult to his ravaged and battered body. By 1830, he was operating out of Fort Union, which was an American fur company outpost on the upper Missouri on the border of modern-day North Dakota and Montana. Hunting for a trading post was an easier life than wading in freezing streams to trap beaver and, and safer too, uh, or at least you'd think so. In 1833, Glass relocated to Fort Cass near the confluence of the Bighorn and Yellowstone River in what is now Montana. And leaving the fort with two companions in the spring of that year, Glass was ambushed by Arikara Indians, and this time he didn't make it. He was shot and scalped, and uh, the ultimate survivor had, had gone under. That's the story. Unfortunately, it's impossible to definitively cull the solid fact from the legend and embellishment. As far as Bridger's involvement goes, Bridger didn't make an appearance by name in this story until years after the events, and then his name was extrapolated off of a youth that was originally identified as Bridges. Could have been Bridger, but we just don't know. Um, earlier accounts didn't even have a second volunteer in them. So Jerry Ensler, in his new biography of uh, 
of Bridger, which I'll link to in the in the show notes, tackles the question um, to um, as to whether Bridger abandoned Hugh Glass in, in pretty good detail, um, even more detail in a uh, article on HughGlass.org, which I'll post in the um, uh, the link to in the show notes as well. And uh, Ensler dug up and published for the first time an interesting bit on the subject. Quoting Ensler here, The final word on this matter might be that of James Bridger himself, cited for the first time publicly in this article. The unpublished papers of James Butler at the Wisconsin State Historical Society contain an 1886 letter from James Stevenson to Professor Butler, who was gathering information on Jim Bridger's life. Stevenson had been an assistant naturalist when Bridger was scout during Governor K. Warren's survey of the lower Yellowstone River in 1856, and William F. Reynolds' survey of the sources of the Missouri and Yellowstone in 1859 and 60. Stevenson, employed by the U.S. Geological Survey and actively engaged in scientific research, wrote Butler that he had spent considerable time engaged in many discussions with Bridger. Stevenson, quite taken with Bridger's veracity, had, quote, tended and hunted with Bridger, and was interested in Bridger, quote, almost as an object of natural history. Butler's letter asked a series of questions about Bridger, and to question number four, Stevenson answered emphatically, Bridger told me the story of your glass, but there was no desertion. So like so many attempts to separate legend and fact in frontier history, we're just left with the totally unsatisfying realization that we just can't know. I will say this, though, um, just my opinion. It always seemed to me that Jim Bridger couldn't have attained the level of preeminence that he did amongst the mountain men had he carried the mark of a man who abandoned a comrade, even if he was just a kid and even if Glass forgave him. It has to be said that the first year of the Ashley Henry expedition had not gone well. Um, in fact, you could say it had been disastrous. They'd lost a keelboat and all the goods on it, which was a loss of thousands of dollars. Um, Ashley had been attacked on the Missouri River by the Arikara, losing men. Um, Ashley's, or uh, rather Henry's uh, men had faced attack by by Blackfeet and uh, it just things were not going according to plan uh, they were losing money and losing men and it looked like the whole project was going to be a failure Bridger spent the winter of 1823 amongst the Crow Indians and Henry's men traded for horses and decided to completely abandon the Missouri River, which had proven to be more of a danger zone than a lifeline. And that changed the game. Ensler writes, It had taken 25 months and more than 25 deaths, but now they were in a land where the beaver were plentiful. They trapped the waters of the Green River, which was called Rio Verde by the Mexicans, and Sitzkidi by the Crows. Bridger was now in Mexican territory, west of the land that Thomas Jefferson had purchased from France two decades earlier. 
Bridger found himself trapping with a party led by a man named John Weber in the Bear River country in what is now Utah. It was still a dangerous country, um, and even ostensibly friendly Indians could, uh, could pose a real danger to the trappers. Ensler writes, The Shoshones viewed it as their land and wanted to defend it from the Blackfeet and the Sioux. The tribe had been relying on the Hudson's Bay trappers for guns and goods, but began to trade for guns with the Americans and accepted an American flag as a sign of peace and future trade. But some still pillaged the Americans' traps and camps whenever they could. In the months ahead, they would kill 13 American trappers and plunder 180 American traps and a proportionate number of guns and knives. So the Shoshone were mostly friendly, and and Bridger would actually marry a Shoshone woman, but they were also opportunistic. And uh, what Ensler just described is just a reminder that, that... the life of the mountain men was always in danger from grizzly bears, from terrible weather, and from the Indians. We have to remember also that this was terra incognita to white Americans. This was land that had not been explored and mapped, and they were kind of figuring out the terrain and the geography as they went. Ensler writes, The course of Bear River is like a giant question mark in its route, and so it was in the trappers' minds. Where would it go next? Could it be the Bonaventura, that mysterious river that rumor held might be the water passage to the west? They argued among themselves about the course of the bear, and some trappers made a wager. 20-year-old Bridger was selected to explore its course. Bridger mounted his horse and followed the bear. He was going to see where the river flowed. This experience was different than setting traps in icy streams. He wasn't making money. He was making dreams. He studied what lay ahead, not knowing what he might find or if the Indians he would meet would be friends or foes. Bridger's reflection in still water showed a man far different in appearance than two years earlier. His skin brown from the sun, he could easily be mistaken for an Indian at a distance. Where the Bear River led turned out to be the Great Salt Lake. And Bridger was, as far as is known, the first white American to see the Great Salt Lake. And that quote-unquote discovery also marked Bridger's discovery of his true calling. He was a good trapper, and he was a skilled hunter, a crack shot, and he was becoming an ace horseman, all of the skills of the mountain man. But uh, a lot of mountain men had those skills. Essentially, if you didn't have or develop those skills, you weren't going to make it in the mountains. What Bridger was best at, and better than almost any of his peers was acting as a scout and a pilot. He seemed to have an exceptional, innate sense of geography and kind of an unexcelled feel for terrain. And apparently he had a taste for discovering new country. He was just, he was a natural-born scout. 
After almost three years in the mountains, the Ashley Henry men were finally successful. They had taken a load of peltries. But the business model had a major sticking point. They had to get the furs to market across this vast country. And uh, Ashley and Henry wanted to keep the trappers in the mountains trapping. They didn't want to take a good chunk of the year uh, just moving the furs back to market. So once again, Ashley innovated. He sent out word far and wide to the various groups of trappers who were working the mountain streams to come to Henry's Fork on the Green River near present-day McKinnon, Wyoming, in the month of July, to trade their furs for goods transported from St. Louis. It was 1825, and Ashley had kicked off the first Rocky Mountain Rendezvous, which is one of the gaudiest traditions in American frontier history. The rendezvous was part trade fair and part Bacchanal. The tribes like the Shoshone and the Flathead and the Crows, the Arapaho, also turned up for rendezvous. And trappers formed liaisons with native women. Some were momentary, um, literally trading a handful of beads for a few minutes of, of sex. But some became lasting marriages. Um, most everybody in the uh, the first days of, of a rendezvous drank themselves stupid and, and feverish gambling was, was kind of the order of the day. Uh, what happened at rendezvous stayed at rendezvous, you know. But once the party simmered down, the men got down to business, and the business was outfitting brigades for another year and plotting out their trapping expeditions and getting the furs ready to, to transport back to St. Louis. After the 1825 rendezvous, Bridger guided Ashley toward a water route to get that vast haul of furs back to civilization. And uh, once again, Bridger was selected to test a route. Um, he was tasked to test the rapids through Bad Pass on the, the Bighorn River to see if uh, they could transport furs along the Bighorn. And the answer to that was an emphatic no. Bridger ran a four-mile stretch of really intense rapids. I don't know what the classification would be, but high. Um, on a log raft, and that is a feat that some people have compared to John Wesley Powell's running of the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon in the 1860s. Um, having made his pile, Andrew Henry retired from the mountains, and so did the, the leader of Bridger's party, John Weber, and a young mountain man named Jedediah Smith became Ashley's field captain, and Williams, uh, William Sublette became a brigade leader, which the mountain men called a bourgeois, which is a, an Americanization of bourgeoisie. Bridger could have, at that point, returned to civilization with a good return on his three years in the mountains. But that never really seemed to be a real consideration for him. Um, he stayed in the mountains because they were his new home. From 1826 to 1830, Jim Bridger had what I consider to be absolutely the best gig in the American West and probably in the whole history of the American West. 
Jed Smith, David Jackson, and William Sublette had bought out Ashley and Henry in 1826. And Bridger became a pilot for the new company's fur brigades. Now, as we talked about in the uh, Kit Carson series, we tend to have a kind of a Jeremiah Johnson stereotype of the mountain men as being these lone men, maybe a couple guys off in the the beaver streams of the Rocky Mountains, um, isolated and, and on their own. That wasn't really the way the fur trade operated, especially in this period. These fur brigades were big. They might stretch out for a quarter mile, and there were you know dozens of trappers, their equipment, camp helpers, Indian families, pack stock. Uh, they did break out into smaller groups once they they reached good trapping grounds, and you know a, a couple of of. You know, the trappers would go out in, in small groups or pairs to, to actually trap. But uh, as they moved through the country, they, they moved in these, these very large parties. And Bridger had to plot routes that would get them safely through challenging country, find good graze for the horses, potable water, timber for building temporary shelters or defenses, game for the pot, he had to make sure that they didn't run into Blackfeet or get their horses stolen by crows or Shoshones. And he had to find good streams with plenty of beaver. Quite a job, right? And Bridger was really good at it. And in doing it, he became one of a new Tier 1 elite class of American frontiersmen. Washington Irving, who is famous for writing The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle, wrote a contemporary description of this new class of frontiersmen. A totally different class has now sprung up. The mountaineers, the traders and trappers that scale the vast mountain chains and move from place to place on horseback, heedless of hardship, daring of danger, prodigal of the present and thoughtless of the future, There is, perhaps, no class of men on the face of the earth who lead a life of more continued exertion, peril, and excitement. It's kind of uh, an item of conversation and a bit of a joke in our our clan that, uh, you know, if you get, uh, if you're really good at what you do, you, uh, you suffer a terrible fate and get promoted to management. And uh, that usually means that you don't get to do as much of the thing that you love the best and the thing that you're best at. And that's what happened to, to Jim Bridger. It was, you know, the, the fur trade was a corporate and capitalist operation. And, uh, and Bridger got kicked up into management. And worse than that, he became an actual partner. In 1830, Sublette and Company sold Rocky Mountain Fur Company to Bridger, Milton Sublette, Thomas Fitzpatrick, and two other men. And so Bridger was now not a pilot for the fur brigades, but the Bouchway, a leader of a fur brigade. And, uh, you know, he never said so. Uh, I'm, I'm speculating that, uh, that he probably 
would have have been happier had he remained in his role as a pilot. But uh, there he was as the Bushway of a of the Rocky Mountain Fur Company in a suddenly very very intensely competitive environment. Um, Hudson Bay Company was pushing in from the west and the north, and John Jacob Astor's American Fur Company, which had established itself much earlier along the rivers and trading posts and trading with the the native peoples, including the Blackfeet, they decided that they wanted some of the action that Ashley had developed by his direct trapping innovation. So they expanded off of the Missouri River trade and they followed the Rocky Mountain Fur Company into the mountains. Literally. American fur did not have anywhere near the experience or expertise of Rocky Mountain Fur Company's leadership and, and trappers. They didn't know where the good beaver streams were. They didn't know how to navigate the country. Um, so in 1832, they set upon a strategy of simply dogging Bridger's footsteps as he wended his way into Blackfeet country in the northern Rockies. Um, this period coincided with a decline in uh, in beaver trapping because the the fur brigades had hit the streams the easily accessible streams very hard so um you know in the in the previous five or six years so the uh the trappers had to go into uh, untrapped country in order to find large concentrations of, of beavers and that meant blackfeet country which of course was a very dangerous thing to do so Bridger's entering Blackfeet country and is being followed by a brigade of the American Fur Company. And Bridger tried to lose them, but racing through the country and trying to shake off a tail uh, meant little time for trapping. And uh, American Fur Company could afford that because they were backed by John Jacob Astor's deep pockets. And it is that Astor family, after all, of um, New York, the Astoria Hotel, very, very wealthy. Um, so American Fur had cash reserves that the Rocky Mountain Fur Company just didn't have. So uh, Rocky Mountain Fur couldn't afford to operate at a loss just to try to get rid of, of American Fur Company. So Bridger tried to scrape them off by running the smaller American Fur Brigade into the Blackfeet, which is admittedly a pretty brutal way of handling a business rival. But the fur trade was a cutthroat business. And uh, Rocky Mountain Fur Company had a heavy debt load, which was owed to the former owner, William Sublette, who was still supplying goods for rendezvous at a five times markup. So the company's financial position was precarious at best, and um, and so that that season of 1832 and into 1833 was uh, extremely stressful. Um, the intense competition also led to a dire level of overtrapping. Um, Hudson Bay's director, George Simpson, who uh, we talked about in, in the series on, on the Highland Scots, uh, for his part, had decided that, that uh, 
they would deviate from Hudson Bay's general practice, which was to to try to not overtrap the streams and to leave a population that could regenerate and uh, create what he called a fur desert uh, just to keep American competitors out of their territory. So this intensification of competition led to not only to conflicts between fur brigades, conflicts between the fur brigades and the Blackfeet, but also a, a really heavy over-exploitation of the resource that they all made their living on. Um, so the mountain men pushed into Blackfeet territory. That meant more frequent clashes with these deadly warriors. Um, it got to the point where um, there were almost daily encounters sometimes, and uh, it was a kill-or-be-killed kind of situation, and the mountain men started simply firing upon any Blackfeet that they encountered at any time, assuming that they were an enemy, which, again, a very stressful way to operate. Perhaps the worst thing of all, though, was that the market was shrinking. The beaver top hat, which had driven the demand for, for beaver pelts was slowly being supplanted by the silk top hat. Um, so Bridger didn't know it, but in these years, 1832 or 33, the Rocky Mountain fur trade had pretty much passed its zenith and was already sliding into decline. It was definitely a difficult and stressful time for a bushway, but Bridger managed to have his, his good times. He was a, a man of substance now, and he married a, a flathead woman in 1834 or 35 and started a family. Um, he was very highly regarded by his peers, and he had become known to the, the broader American public as a new archetype of, of the frontiersman. A Scottish huntsman and adventurer named Sir William Drummond Stewart, who was very enamored of the life of the mountain men, attended several rendezvous, basically as a tourist. And uh, he was the heir of a, uh, a Scottish estate and uh, a man of, of means and a, a romantic for one of the rendezvous, he ordered up an armored breast and backplate set and a helmet and had it shipped out, uh, out to rendezvous, and he presented it to Jim Bridger uh, as a knight of the prairies, and uh, he, he delighted, Bridger delighted in putting on the armor and parading through camp. And uh, his friend Joe Meek got drunk, one day and borrowed the armor and put it on and reeled around the camp shouting, a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. It might come as a surprise to some, but uh, the mountain men loved their Shakespeare like most Americans did in, in the 19th century. And, uh, you know, they had long hours, especially in the winter, when uh, there wasn't much to do. So the literate uh, mountain men would read from Shakespeare to the illiterate mountain men. And Bridger, too, enjoyed his, uh, his taste of the bard. So in this period, the rendezvous itself was changing. Uh, forts and trading posts were being built in the Rockies, which meant 
there were more places to trade. Um, mountain men were not entirely dependent on, on trading at rendezvous. Uh, missionaries were starting to show up, headed towards the Pacific coast, and they cast a very uh, jaundiced eye on the barbaric splendor of our mountain men. Ensler writes, By the late 1830s, the fur trade was changing. The competition for pelts had decimated the beaver population. Changing fashions meant more people were wearing silk hats instead of beaver, and fur collars and cuffs were being made from another animal, nutria. The decreasing market led many trappers to skip the rendezvous entirely and go directly to the forts on the South Platte to sell their pelts. Some of the mountain men had turned to theft. In 1836, Pegleg Smith and Jim Beckworth went to California with Ute Chief Walcara to steal animals from ranches and missions near Pueblo de Los Angeles. In 1839, Pegleg Smith, Jim Beckworth, Bill Williams, Phil Thompson, Ute leader Walcara, and several others went back to California to carry out a huge raid in the vicinity of the mission at San Luis Obispo, midway between San Francisco and Los Angeles. They used mares and heat to lead more than 3,000 horses away from the Mexican ranches, making the raid the largest livestock theft in California history. Now, Jim Bridger wasn't going to go into horse theft for a, a second career, and he didn't want to just become a meat hunter, um, which is what Kit Carson did um, as the fur trade uh, declined. He could feel the change coming on, and uh, we don't know what his, his thinking was exactly, but he, he accompanied a load of furs back to St. Louis with his fellow mountain man, Andrew Drips. And uh, he might have been contemplating leaving the mountains, um, although he, you know, he had a, a, a flathead wife there and, and children. Um, if that was the case, if he really was thinking about leaving the mountains, his, his visit to his childhood haunts, totally dissuaded him. There were crowds of people, and uh, he fell ill, and, and uh, he was racked with fever, and, and he was low, feeling depressed. He told a friend that he, quote, wished to go back to the free life of the mountains. It wasn't the same life that it had been, but it beat the settlements. So, uh, so Bridger returned west, and he accompanied another one of the great exploring mountain men, uh, Joseph Redford Walker, on an expedition to California, not a horse-thieving expedition. But uh, in 1841, he turned back to the Rocky Mountains and with a partner named Henry Frab, built a trading post in what is now southwestern Wyoming. So at the age of 35, for the first time in two decades, Jim Bridger had settled down. Thank you all for taking the trail with me and, and Jim Bridger. And uh, we'll pick up his tracks again at Fort Bridger in the next episode. I want to uh, particularly thank our patrons, BU scouts, partisans, or captain. I want to give you an individual shout out, but if I mangle the pronunciation of your name, please let me know. I, I do want to get it right. 
Robert Dice, Alan Godseff, Jerry Nunnally, Christopher West, Matthew or Free Live Free, Paul McNamee, David Rolson, and Rick Schwartfager. Thank you very much for your support. Uh, it uh, It's valued tremendously and uh, couldn't continue to do the podcast without your help and the help of all of the readers or listeners rather out there who uh, share this with like-minded folks. Uh, we're creating a, a very enjoyable campfire and want to keep that rolling. So uh, we'll see you down the trail. <laughs>